0: Well, Seth, we're not in person, but it is good to see you, even if it is just on my screen. How are
1: you? I'm great. I'm glad we can do this through the wonders of technology.
0: Technology is pretty incredible. And you know what else is pretty incredible? Our website. I hope people (laughs) go and check out our website, check out our merch. But there's one other thing that I think is pretty incredible. And that's a certain question. What would you do in this particular situation? So let's say you're a musical or comedic act of some kind. On the billing, on the marquee, do you want to be the opener or do you want to be the headliner? Do you want to be the opening act or do you want to be the main person, the main group that people are there to see?
1: See, I think I would like to be the opener because... I think that's how you can discover new artists. And I think I, it would be neat to be discovered that way. New artists or comedians. Like right. You go to the show to see the headliner, but then you're like, oh, that person was cool too.
0: That's right, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking too. You don't buy a ticket, for the most part, and I think this happens sometimes, but you don't buy a ticket to a concert to see the opening act. But the opening act might be able to surprise you in some way. I also think the opening act has the chance to kind of not only set the tone, but in a lot of ways like steal the show too. I'm especially thinking of like comedians too, because a lot of times comedians bring good opening acts, kind of get the crowd loosened up a little bit, get them running before like late night talk shows. They usually have stand up comedians perform before like Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Fallon come out just to like, have the audience used to laughing and having a good time i never knew that yeah i just always wonder though like are they insecure about who they bring on because they still want to be funnier than yeah them, right <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: i definitely would be i'd have to like screen them to make sure that i'm still funnier
0: yeah maybe if the liturgists go on tour we can be their <laughs> opening act yeah In terms of religious podcasts yeah I, mean, I like that idea but are we just gonna do the same thing we do here and then they come on and do the same thing they do on their show yeah which means our portion will be like 25 minutes and theirs will be like two, two. and a half hours <laughs> <laughs> exactly all right well seth i think we've got some interesting conversation ahead of us today but it all starts off with your surely excellent reading of our passage. So why don't you go ahead and read it for us? I feel like the pressure's on. I feel like I'm the
1: headliner now. (laughs) But this is John 1, verses 10 through 18 from the Common English Bible. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light. But the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people, And his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than me, because he existed before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. God the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made God known.
0: Thanks, Seth. As you read through this passage, part of the famous first chapter of John's Gospel, what stood out to you? I forgot how
1: abruptly this section begins. Like, it starts with, the light was in the world, and you're like, wait a minute. Who is that? <laughs> it's like, it's only later that you that you get that the word has become flesh right? It's like only later that you start to kind of put the pieces together. Like, oh, I think it's talking about Jesus Christ. But if you just start hearing it at verse 10, it's like, what is even happening right now?
0: Yeah. Well, it's true because, you know, verse 10 really is jumping in in the middle of this poetic, philosophical opening of sorts to John's gospel. And, you know, we get through this section on You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then by verse 6, you get to the verse, A man named John was sent to (laughs) God, which seems very anticlimactic after the first few verses that just portray these big cosmic battles and everything. Then it talks about how John was paving the way for Jesus, the true light. You know, verse 9, just before we read, and just before what you read, where we started, verse 9 reads, the true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. That sets Hmm. the stage for what we're reading about the relationship between the light and the world, how people who believe in the light become God's children and how God became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, this, again, this high level, philosophical, theological discourse that starts off the gospel is rooted in the witness of John, who kind of set the stage for what Jesus was coming to do. But it's really striking to me as we are now, we're we're out of the Christmas season, we are post-Epiphany, and it's so interesting to contrast this opening of this gospel to the openings of the other gospels especially <laughs> yeah. those stories that we've read so recently around the Christmas and birth narratives and i'm just wondering seth what differences from your memory of how the gospels start like what differences stand out to you especially when compared with what john offers us in at least what we read part of today okay this is like a test my Right, yeah. I'm gonna call your New Testament professor after this to let let her know how you did. Yeah, this is a test of like how I've conflated the gospels,
1: right? Okay, well if I'm if I'm remembering Mark correctly, he starts his narrative also with John the Baptist, but there's no fancy philosophical prologue. Like it jumps right into the story. John's in the wilderness, like eating locusts and honey. He's like, this guy's coming. But Luke starts his narrative at a totally kind of different place with with first identifying who he is, that he's going to tell this story. And then he starts like even, even before John the Baptist. He tells about Mary. He has stories about Jesus growing up. Uh, Jesus teaching in the temple when he's like 12, 13. So he gets kind of pieces of the story that Nobody else gets. And then in Matthew, of course, that's another kind of different outlook in which we also get pieces of the story that nobody else has. They flee because of Herod's, what,
0: decree that he's going to slaughter all these innocent kids. Like, yeah, like infanticide. <laughs> yeah, like, I was like, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah, fleeing essentially as refugees, as people who are escaping persecution to Egypt. Yeah, there's this there's this sense that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all start their stories in ways that make sense <laughs> in in light of the gospel that is being constructed and taking shape. And you're right, especially the openings to Matthew and Luke so often get conflated into one story that leaves our nativity scenes with shepherds and magi alongside each other when they... Probably we're visiting Jesus years <laughs> apart, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and all these and these other things, but truthfully though, in addition to showing us more about who Jesus was, John stands out as the gospel that lifts Jesus highest, yeah. I would say, at least in its start. I think there are other images of Jesus throughout that are very down to earth. And a lot of the metaphors, the I am statements that we see throughout John's gospel are very earthy and tangible. But John, for whatever reason, and we can talk about this a little more, starts off on a cosmic level (laughs) before zooming into first century Palestine. It starts off with this high level discourse And you know, one of the things that I love, at least a framework that I love when thinking about the Gospels, is not that the Gospels are stories and histories in the way that we would describe them that are factually accurate, but are stories intended to reveal their main characters, persona and character, and highlight different things about them even if the way that those things are highlighted aren't historically true, again, in our modern lens. And so I guess my the question to kind of wrap up what the story of this text is, Seth, is what does this introduction to John's gospel, at least the portion that we read, what does it set the stage to tell us about who Jesus is? And what do you receive from this that feels like oh, this is what the author of John is trying to tell us about Jesus. I like your language that
1: John starts his gospel at a cosmic level. And that's how I've been thinking about this introduction and where John's story is going. That his narrative is going to tell us about Jesus Christ, who fundamentally alters kind of the way that we live in the world at a cosmic level. That, like, everything will be so different because of Jesus Christ. That it's not just going to be localized to first century Palestine. That it's going to be all time and all space is somehow going to be affected by this. Like, what a way to start a story. Everybody else is like, okay, we're zooming in to right before Mary's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then John's like, I'm going to start my story at the
0: very beginning of time. It's like right. It's like okay. <laughs> okay, John. I feel like we could go in, we could have like a whole series of episodes just on this chapter, John's Gospel, because of how it relates to the Greek context at the time and the Roman world in which it emerged and just all these different Concepts and philosophies that are being swept up in this reference and it's and it's so interesting Seth because I think this is is Striking and helps us transition to a conversation about at least a point of this passage You know, we we get this very high level introduction about the word being with God in the beginning And everything that is coming into being through the word being jesus You get this introduction to a man named John who's paving the way and setting the stage for the word, for the light to shine brightly and truly in the world. And then you get this verse in verse 14, right in the middle, that starts with a short sentence, the word became flesh and made his home among us. And there's just such a juxtaposition there from that cosmic scope to a very personal, specific scope. And so, as we continue to wrestle with the implications of a God incarnate, a God in the flesh, as this verse kind of gives us some language for, I'm wondering what you think some of the implications are that the same word that was foundational to the very existence of the world being born as a baby, taking on human flesh. What is that That back and forth, that relationship between Christ's supremacy and lordship and Christ's humility, which I know we talked about a little bit in our last episode, I'm talking about Philippians 2. I know these are big questions because this is a big passage, But I'm just so struck by this cosmic scale culminating in this moment where the word, the one through whom all things came into being, the word then came into being. (laughs) (laughs) And what the implications are for the divine dwelling among us as one of us.
1: Well, since it was just the Christmas season, I've been thinking about the incarnation a lot lately. And it's appropriate, right, that this passage comes immediately after the Christmas season and epiphany. Because it leads us right in to the time after epiphany or ordinary time. But I think that a God who is eternal and yet also wants to be with us so intimately that God will take on human flesh shows us a god that loves us so much that god doesn't want to be arms length from us doesn't want to stay in the pulpit of heaven if i can say it that way he doesn't want to act like a puppeteer or watch from the the grandstand but it shows us a god who wants to be with us so badly that god will put on our human flesh too and come down and walk around with us and experience what we experience and cry with us and laugh and hug us. I guess for me, all that to say, the why of the incarnation for me is love. God only does all of this because God loves us. We get this philosophical discourse in John at the beginning. And sometimes we can get caught up in that. I can get caught up in that, at least. But it ends up distracting me from the one who is love. Who becomes flesh because God loves us that much. That was my Christmas slash first Sunday after Epiphany summary of the Incarnation.
0: So I... I wanted to do this because I was struggling to remember it before but I looked up this passage in the message as well Hmm. and verse 14 which I love just hits it home from Eugene Peterson and says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood oh that's awesome I remember my my New Testament professor at Wesley uh, Shively Smith who's now at the School of Theology at Boston University. She started off our Gospels class, my first year of seminary, by showing us a scene from Talladega Nights, <laughs> The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, where Ricky Bobby's around with his, or with his family, and they're praying. And I haven't seen the movie, didn't remember it well enough, but know that, like, Essentially, the, the point of the scene is one of the characters likes to pray to little baby Jesus. But the other characters like to talk and pray to Jesus in a different way. And she used that as a really brilliant introduction into the different ways that the gospel authors portray Jesus in different ways. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really relevant for us, too, to think about the Jesus that we connect with the most. And if I'm being really honest, I don't know that I, at least right now, that I connect with a Jesus who is the creator of all things, the firstborn of all creation. I don't know that I connect with a cosmic Jesus very well right now. Hmm. But I find myself connecting more so with the Jesus who takes on flesh, is born among us as a child, takes on all of our vulnerability takes on messy diapers takes on puberty <laughs> takes on all these things that help God know deeply what it is that we experience and then stands with and among the poor and the marginalized that's a Jesus I can really connect with mm. Yeah, and I think what this passage reminds me is that that is simply an aspect of Jesus's identity mm. yeah and it's not just like a twofold thing of Jesus being cosmic and and Jesus being lowly or Jesus being divine and Jesus being human. It's not just this twofold thing. It's this I don't know, to throw a five-dollar word out there, it's this multiplicity of identities and expressions that make Jesus always comforting and challenging, that make Jesus always love and always true power and these things that feel like they are in contrast or in conflict with one another, somehow Jesus brings them together. Just like the word, the firstborn over all creation, the one through whom all things were made, that word is also then taking on flesh and walking among us and moving into the neighborhood there's that, that tension there that's reminding me that I have the opportunity to connect to a different aspect of Jesus's identity than someone else might. But my preference of my understanding of Jesus's identity does not make up the entirety of his identity. Mm-hmm. And there's always more to be drawn into. That's one thing that I've always appreciated about the breadth of our
1: Christian tradition. There's just so many different perspectives but that all of them, I think, have, have their kernel of truth to them, right? So whenever we, like, pick our one bastion and say, like, this is, this is my corner, like, we just miss out on everything that all these other traditions have to offer us. Especially when we talk about Jesus Christ. Like, it's such a... This is, this is an understatement. It's such a big topic. Right? We can just always keep going. We can keep yeah. learning something about Jesus. Keep seeing other perspectives about him. Like, keep oscillating between seeing him as, as so human and embedded in our lives and also seeing him as as all-powerful and all-knowing and eternally coexistent with the Father. And the, the struggle is always to do those, to try and hold all of those together. Like yeah. juggling,
0: right? Yeah, and on that note, Seth, I'm curious to know, this may seem unrelated, but I have a point, I promise. <laughs> what's What's one of the most, no, what would you say is the most beautiful place that you've ever been on Earth?
1: During my honeymoon three years ago, we went to Acadia National Park and drove up to the very top. It's called Cadillac Mountain. And you can look out and there's, there's all these like little islands in the bay and the there's this like beautiful sea. I think that's probably the most beautiful place for me.
0: So for me there' have been a lot of places in actually in Rwanda that I still just consider some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. There's a an, a Rwandan proverb that says that more or less this is a you know just me butchering. A summary of it, but <laughs> more or less, saying that you know during the day God walks about the whole world, doing the things that God is up to, but at night God sleeps in Rwanda. Hmm. Hmm. And it's hard to communicate how that is reflected in the beautiful rolling hills and rivers and valleys and everything. But it, it, there's there's something about it, and you know. As people who have had the privilege of traveling, (laughs) at least some, we've seen a lot of, I think you'd say this too, like seen a lot of beauty in the world. They even appreciate the beauty of the places where we live too. Highlighting beauty does not need to be a zero sum game. Hmm. Hmm. And I think that's what we get caught up in when we start talking about Jesus, is that we try to be corrective instead of curious and say oh if we're emphasizing jesus's humanity enough or too much we're saying well remember jesus was divine but resonating with and exploring jesus's humanity or divinity or something else about jesus's identity doesn't negate the other stuff Mm -hmm. just like finding one place on earth That we think is beautiful does not make the next place less beautiful. It simply means that there is that much more to explore and revel in and enjoy.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: I saw a tweet the other
1: week. I love Twitter. That said, everyone thinks they have the best dog in the world. And they're all right. (laughs) and and that's how I think about this it's not like when I have a cup of water and I like drink all of it that it runs out right like with Jesus there's enough to keep going around
0: yeah Mm. that feels like a great spot to end thinking about all the good dogs all of them every (laughs) single one can I pray for us I'd love that living one Your love knows no bounds. When we think we are at the greatest depths, we've barely scratched the surface. Help us to see your love in and around us, in and around others, in and around your creation, and in and around all the good dogs. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you, from all over the world, I pray in the name of the word who moved into the neighborhood, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks for tuning in everyone. Next week, we're talking about spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But Jonathan, thanks for walking us through
0: that story. Thanks for helping me tell it.
1: Are you excited to record it in, like, a closet so it's soundproof at your new place? I'll probably have to figure
0: out something like that, yeah. It'll be... be, However it works out, it'll be fine.
1: But Jonathan, thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping us... Wow.